0: So welcome back to Relentless, where your anatomy meets your identity. That's my new tagline. Do you like that? It's deep, isn't it? That's my way of saying mind-body connection. And I think I bring the anatomy side to it because I'm a body worker. That's what I do. That's what I do on my daily basis is um, clinical body work, traditional massage with a whole bunch of stuff wrapped up into it. So on the Relentless podcast, it's always our goal to bring you practitioners and people that can help you build a strong physical, mental, and emotional connection so that you can live a truly happy and healthy lifestyle. So one of the awesome things about social media and the internet and technology is that you get to meet people that I promise you I would have never met in any other situation in life. I'm very excited about today's guest and the topics that we're going to cover because it just it's right up my alley with my clients of figuring out um, new ways and different ways to communicate with the body. So welcome, Allison. And you Thanks. go by Allie. Allie, is that correct? Yeah, you can call me Allie. Very good. And Allie is um, going to be here to share her knowledge as a music therapist, and of course, as my podcast always does, we'll get into a little bit of her story, her individual life story, her family, her children, her struggles and successes, because none of this matters if we don't see how it played out in someone else's life, because that's the goal for this podcast is to show people, I've been through these hard things too, this is how I did it, this is how I came through on the other side and healed so that I can live that, that fulfilled physical, mental, emotional connection of life. So I'm going to go through a little bit of the boring, not boring, but just technical stuff. Because if anyone heard, that's just popping in to hear this podcast heard Music Therapist, you're like, oh, I'm not into music. So this one isn't for me. I guarantee you this podcast will touch one member of your very immediate family. Because her experience and what she has to offer as a practitioner has the ability to positively affect many different health conditions um, and many different struggles that people have on a daily basis. So I'm gonna run through a little bit of what it is that makes up her specialty and then she's gonna take a floor and run with it. That sound good? Good. So your business is Oh My Musical Goodness, correct? Yeah, I kind of have two facets
1: to my business. Oh, My Musical Goodness is Mm -hmm. my online instrument store and I'm very passionate about um, making instruments that are age and ability inclusive accessible to people. So we really only see that... um, uh, We really only have access in, in a mainstream way to Western instruments that require lessons and teachers or children's instruments, which click and shake and tap. Um, and we start to think that unless we can play an instrument, we are not musical,
0: Mm. but
1: as a neurologic music therapist, I know that the brain is a musical organ. So music is to the brain as breathing is to the lungs.
0: Yes.
1: Yeah. All musical. Mm -hmm. Um, But whilst we live in a sort of culture where we believe you need to have lessons or play a Western instrument to be a musical person, we are denying our musicality. Mm -hmm. So Oh My Musical Goodness is one facet of my business in where I really focus on helping people remember their musicality, remember their voice and use it um, and use their body as their instrument. Um, And I do have an, instrument store where we uh, use instruments that accompany our body to make music rather than be the performance. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, I also have, uh, and I guess the main facet of my, my business and what I do is working as a neurologic music therapist in the area of uh, brain care. So I specialize in understanding how the brain responds to different elements of music Um, So music is sort of like an umbrella term, really. Music isn't what we think it is. It's not about the song or the performance or the concert. Uh, Music is a sum of its parts. So music is melody and it is rhythm and it is vibration and it is frequency and tempo and dynamic and silence and movement. And there are so many different elements that come together to create what we think of as music and the brain responds to all of those elements differently. And that's why when we experience music by either making it, listening to it, or even thinking about it. So even getting that pesky little song stuck in our head and we can't stop singing it in our mind over and over and over, even if we're not singing it out loud, we are experiencing music. And because there are so many tiny little elements that come together to make music, um, there is a whole brain activation that happens when we experience the music. So more, when we experience music, more of the brain becomes active simultaneously than when we experience any other thing that research has ever shown us so Mm -hmm. far.
0: And that's what you handle in the second aspect of your business is that education, correct? Yeah. And I wanted to share with everyone a rundown because like I said, this touches So many people, because I know there's someone in almost everyone's family that this can help. So for example, first of all, so what your title is, is you're a neurologic music therapist, brain care specialist, correct? Yes. And your scope of practice has included working in these areas. So you do a couple different seminars, brains equals behaviors, where you Mm -hmm. teach how the brain works like you were talking about. So we can understand that music, sound and silence, where you work with children that experience meltdowns, sensory overload, little emotional control, trouble engaging or communicating. don't know who that would apply to. Um, and you often say, I, I just in, in researching what you've done, you often say, blame the brain, not the child. So you're yeah. trying to help educate parents on dealing with these type of situations. Yeah. You've also done extensive work with veterans and teens at juvenile detention centers, palliative care facilities, working with autistic children, individuals with stroke and other brain damage, prenatal care for music and breathing during pregnancy. So important. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Baby sign language, and your focus now is, I believe, on speech rehabilitation and self-care. Does that cover it all? Yes, basically. Is that a a good summation? Yes. That's why I wanted to get that out right away because I want people to know, like you said, it's not about learning to play an instrument or I'm not musically gifted. It's not that at all. Like I said, it is learning another method of communicating with this entity and there's Mm. many ways to do that.
1: So there's a real misconception. There is a real misconception about what music therapy is and people think it's about music mm -hmm. and it's just music is the tool we use but we are healthcare providers um allied health practitioners um just like physiotherapists occupational therapists speech and language pathologists Mm -hmm. Um, we are we focus on therapeutic outcomes so what music therapy actually is about is psychology and neurology and biology and (laughs) sociology and all of that and music is just the
0: tool and where did you get your um, study? Where did you study? What are your technical? So I, 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 um, I have a
1: Bachelor of Music and a Bachelor of Teaching. And I studied with the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia, and I did a Master of Music Therapy. Um, and with that, I did a mini thesis on um, the effects on our sleep quality when we listen to repetitive music, I was, I was using Mozart. Uh, when we listen to Mozart music over and over and over every night in a row. Mm -hmm.
0: Um,
1: and it was a really cool little study because I was, I was, um, my, um, my participants were all uni students because, uh, it was very clear from the research that university students have the worst sleep quality. Um, (laughs) so I definitely found that a real pattern in this research in that, when we listened to the music of Mozart or repetitive music here and there, it didn't make such a difference. But the people who listened to it every night successively experienced increased um, sleep quality um, after having listened to it at least three nights in a row.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm. So that was your thesis? Was that
1: study? And then it was many years. I started a private practice Um, That was 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I started a private practice in Tasmania uh, where I've, where I live. And that's when I worked with all of those demographics and all of the, those groups that you sort of ran through before. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until 2016 that I trained with the Academy of neurologic music therapy. Um, And now in my clinic, in my clinical work, I work with people who've had a stroke or traumatic brain injury and we use a um neurologic music therapy technique called melodic intonation therapy Mm -hmm. which is where we use melody to rehabilitate speech um love it it's so cool because the part of the brain in charge of speech is only in the left hemisphere but um all of the brain is involved in music making both hemispheres and all of the parts so when we are so people who can't speak anymore because they've uh, either got a dementia or they've had a brain injury or a stroke um they can still um in most cases always sing
0: i think so, we saw an example of that on one of the recent um music talent shows did you see the autistic young man that had um he can yes, speak well I- that's yeah. that was an example. And that just blows my mind. And and when I saw that, I'm like, look how powerful the brain is. It's amazing. Yes. So yes. And that's actually how I found you. So I don't even remember who it was. But one of my friends posted the, you singing the song every little cell. And mm-hmm. maybe we'll have you sing that at the end for us. But that As soon as I heard you sing that, I had an immediate connection to you because I knew what you were doing. I knew what that song was doing. And I I was just like, I have to let her tell everybody why this is so important and why it's so special, especially when we're going through a difficult time in life, in the country, um, when there's high stress. I tell my clients, you have to find every avenue possible to communicate with your body to tell it that it's okay. Because you can say a million times, I need to settle down, I need to calm down, I need, I'm need. i okay. But if your body doesn't know that, you're not gonna get good results. And so that song, I've been singing it to myself. I love it, I absolutely love it. Cause I mean, things are stressful here. My husband and I are both self-employed. We've got two kids, one in college, one in high school. And even though I know all this body stuff and this mind stuff, sometimes I have trouble going to sleep at night and I have been singing that song to myself. It's awesome. I love it. So we'll get to that later. Maybe have you sing it for us. Um, And then another thing that really drew me to you when I was going through your, um, your history of social media and all the things that you post your very first post in 2014 was just two words, musical massage. Yeah. Remember that? Yeah. I was like, yes, this, I mean, (laughs) it's, it's so totally me because I'm a physical massage therapist, but it, with musical massage, it just gives, and this, this is how I interpreted it, and you can say what you meant by it, but just like with body work and massage, there's two people involved. So there's, there's a, there is an immediate um, shared energy of give and take, of trust, and you know, working for that person to help them and what i tell my clients is it's a it's like a dance it's a constant negotiation to get the client's body and the brain to be okay with where it is and to me that's exactly what i think musical massage would be is using all of the stuff you're going to tell us about in the brain to help the body figure out where it is in space and time and that it's okay and when i saw that as your first post i was like that i mean I don't believe in coincidence it was just so <laughs> amazing so you tell me what you meant by musical massage uh, firstly
1: I'm just so impressed that you went back to my very first post
0: Abs- I'm all me. about research
1: <laughs> <laughs> I didn't you know 2014 I when I think back to who I was then I don't even think I knew who I was in
0: 2014
1: yeah um, but I was doing musical massage was the first kind of thing that I developed in my work before I would even trained as a music therapist, I was, I was using singing bowls and I was practicing and I was just instinctively doing, you know, musical massage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it's really interesting that you've brought it up because I've just, I've had a big break because what people have been asking me to do is seminars and workshops talking about the brain. And I've been focusing on that and I've just started doing musical massage again in 2020. So isn't it cool how it's all come around and you're asking me about it right now. Yep. Um, Musical massage uh, is what I do is a 45 minute non-contact sound bath. Basically. Mm -hmm. So when people come to me for a musical massage, they lie on the massage table and with their, their back up because the spine is a really beautiful resonating chamber. Mm -hmm. So if you think of the inside of a guitar, how it's hollow, that's Mm -hmm. a resonating chamber. It's like a natural amplification. And when you play the guitar strings, even though they're, they're really soft and little, that whole empty space in there is what amplifies the sound and the vibration and makes it really strong. And so, yeah. And it's the same with our spine and our nervous system. When, when, someone, when I play singing bowls or tone, vocal toning with my voice, or just create layers of vibration um, above someone's back and legs and head and neck and just in their field, what's happening is I am creating sound waves which then uh, get with their energy frequencies or their own sound waves of their body, because if we could amplify, you know, if we could amplify our hearing, we would hear that every part of our body, because it's all vibrating atoms, that it makes a sound. It has a pitch. Um, And that's to do with our physical organs and our energy centers. So all of our body uh, would be creating music if we could hear it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So when I make music, or when I make a specific pitch or frequency, what I'm doing is I'm creating a sound wave that then um, gets with their sound wave and recalibrates or realigns. So within our body as people, as humans, we are always going to have areas that are sluggish. We are always going to have areas that are hyper-stimulated. Like you just said, sometimes you find it difficult getting to sleep. And sometimes I find myself emotionally dysregulated and pent up, even though I talk all day long about expressive release so that we don't become emotionally pent up. We're human. So we're still going to experience all that. And it's not a problem. It's not it doesn't mean we're not working um, on ourselves. It's just what humans do. So, we're always going to have areas that are really like hyper stimulated for me. It's my mind. It's my throat. I've always got things I want to say. I always want to just be really fast. I find it difficult to slow down my mind. Um, And so I know that when I play a pitch or a, or I just sing or I play a music bowl or something that's going to have a very steady regulated sound wave, One that isn't getting faster or isn't going nuts—it's just a really regulated, um, sustained note. But that is actually going to affect my own activity levels in a way that matches what it's hearing. My brain takes all of the auditory stimulator, all of the auditory information from its environment. So the music I play in a musical massage comes to my ears and then the auditory sensory system takes that information to my brain to integrate it and make sense of what's happening in the environment and then my brain will hear this ongoing just sound that's not speeding up not slowing down not changing it's just consistent and the brain is constantly getting these messages from the environment this sounds still going this sounds still going it's not changing and all of a sudden the brain's like oh this is really predictable Mm -hmm. this is really safe This is actually making me feel good. So I'm going to release a bit of dopamine here so that the person knows that this is good. Keep doing this. (laughs) Um, And when the brain predicts or when the brain perceives predictability or something repetitive and ongoing in the environment, it starts to feel very safe. And a safe brain is a brain that is not in survival mode. So you can come in to the beginning of a musical massage being all pent up and all, you know, whatever, but just the act of having a pitch or a frequency played in your field, even if it was only for five minutes, completely changes your brain and nervous system's ability to regulate. It is literally that profound.
0: Yes. Yes. I just, I can't (laughs) say yes enough. It's just, it was so exciting for me. And what I want to touch on really quickly too, is I have a lot of people in my sphere of influence and a lot of people get really weirded out that when you start to go into what they think is the woo-woo side, when you yeah. hear about energy and frequencies. And I want to just kind of, this is the example that I use all the time to just make it understandable. Everyone knows of that person that when they walk into the room, you get a really icky feeling. Your body uh-huh. immediately does, whoa, that, that person, not good. You, and it may make your heart race, it may make you get hot, you may get nervous. That is, that's all energy is and not all it is. That's one good example of energy. So anyone that is turned off even maybe by talking about energy and frequency, it is real. Science has shown us that the ocean, the earth, there's even, I don't know if you know these statistics or numbers, but like how far out of our bodies our energy goes, they can measure that now. So when we're in close proximity with someone, you know, when someone that you like, you're a significant other or someone that you love, when they get close to you, you feel good. You feel happy. Just them touching you makes you feel better. That's not an invisible thing. That's a real thing. So this stuff is really real and it really does affect the body. And I keep going back to it because it's just what I'm searching for. And what you're searching for, for your clients is, it's how this mind, body, brain, emotion, physical, mental, emotional. It's how we get it all to work together better because we can't yeah. separate them. They're inseparable. Um, so the whole,
1: um, I'm not sure if you saw on my, oh my musical goodness, Instagram page, but things you've gone through and looked at them all, you might've come across <laughs> it an image of me playing a singing bowl. And I was at the beach and I filled it up with water, two thirds full of water. And our body is at roughly two thirds water, so this was a really good representation of what happens in the body when we when we have sound frequency. So I was sitting on the beach, holding my bowl full of water, and just playing the singing bowl. And within seconds, the water starts to swirl around, and then it starts to spit, and then it starts to go nuts, and it's going, and the water is flying everywhere. And this is just a really good uh, actual visual scientific. Mm. Example of what happens inside our body, even on a physical level. So, even taking the idea of energy away, think about your lymphatic system, your blood circulation, your fluids—like all of the stuff that make us up—are yes. having basically are just a big juge. You know, I love like it.
0: Big, big, big it's my favorite scientific term of the day, juge. <laughs> I <laughs> That's love exactly it. <laughs> So one of the other things I also saw you mention very often, and it's something we actually struggle with as well in the massage industry, is being called alternative care. And mm-hmm. you guys in the music ther- world being called alternative therapy. And that's t- totally not what you are. So explain to everyone why that's not what you are. Yeah.
1: Well, there is this misconception. Music therapists get such a rough deal when it comes to what people think of as healthcare. Um, we are an allied health profession and that is because, as I mentioned before, we are not, um, musicians focusing on music. We are therapists focusing on healthcare outcomes. Um, there's a bit of a misconception that music therapists kind of just sit around the fire and sing Kumbaya and, and do, you know, voluntary, um, sing alongs in nursing homes. I've had many, many people over the years say, so have you had to do any kind of training to do this job? Or um, people who, who um, run, you know, community choirs, um, calling themselves music therapists. And so it becomes a really um, grey kind of area in terms of, of people really understanding the whole, the whole arena of music therapy. Um, but music the relationship is I I especially focus on the relationship between music and the brain Mm -hmm. and the relationship between the music and the music and the brain is, is just off the charts. Like there is literally nothing else that research and science has shown us. And people can look this up and there's, you know, those experiments where they put little light bulbs on people's brains and they, they do things like play music and then it all lights up and we can see clearly that when we hear music or think about music, our whole brain lights up Mm -hmm. and that means music therapists, unlike so many other sort of um, healthcare workers, we can really work on uh, a whole range of different therapeutic uh, areas, I guess you'd call it. So we can work on physical stuff, um, playing instruments to help develop motor coordination or something, as well as emotional. So music, Uh, Melody in particular activates the limbic system, which, um, I think of, I think of melody and emotions and long-term memories as well, because they're in there in the limbic system as kind of three best friends. They're always together. So they're always, when you hear melody, when you experience melody, you're always going to feel a feeling and have a memory and they're all just connected those three. So Music uh, stimulates the limbic system, which allows us to um, express emotion. So music therapy can be a fabulous tool for emotional outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, And Psychological work, Um, music helps with sleep. Music helps with behavioural, communicative, like language, um, physical. There are so many different areas of therapeutic need that we can use music um, as a tool Mm -hmm. to support that area of healthcare in our lives.
0: And I think it's really good to acknowledge with people. So when people are hurting or they have family members that are experiencing these different categories that we're going to talk through in just a few minutes, the Western, I always tell my people, I'm not a um, alternative care only or, you know, complementary care only person. I'm not just holistic. I'm not just that and shun Western medicine. I'm not that. I'm what, when, which one do you need when? How can they work together? But people get stuck in the Western medicine journey and they aren't taught how to work with their own body to help it heal. So, and a lot of allopathic and Western medicine is only about managing symptoms and that's necessary sometimes, never discouraging that but it's not retraining your body or teaching your body how to heal itself and to get true healing, that's what you have to come into contact with. So it's not like I said, either or that we're trying to tell people, it's if you're doing these other things, fine, but what else are you doing? What ownership are you taking? What are you teaching your body and telling your body and helping it discover on its own so that you don't need to maintain with external interventions. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, that um, makes
1: total sense. That's exactly. And when I remember how I said in 2014 I didn't know who I was? <laughs> yeah. In 2016 was the year I had my big sort of breakdowns slash breakthroughs and really um really started to understand who I was and what I believed in. And one of the things that happened then was that I completely changed the way I was working in terms of my my private practice I started to realize that you know like in I guess in the medical world we basically know about a healthy diet and exercise and a generally healthy lifestyle and we look after our needs and then we go to the doctor when we are sick acutely sick mm-hmm. and, but in the therapy world we tend to go to our therapist every week and music therapy was no different and I realized that people are becoming more and more disempowered to their own musicality and to knowing how they can use music strategically and therapeutically at home to support their own needs and their children's needs, especially in terms of helping their brains to function at its best and to stay regulated and away from anxiety. Um, And so um, I completely changed the way I was working and that's when I started creating workshops and resources to help inform people who are proactively looking for this information, how they can use music strategically at home so that like you say they are rewiring Mm -hmm. um and they are experiencing new changes in their their belief systems and the way they work and their body and their nervous system starts to become regulated um because of the way they are living their lives right so Um, let's
0: let's go ahead and dive into that and talk about some specific things so the first thing, and I mean, I have so many clients that this touches and we'll talk about your specific story later, but start talking about, you know, your experience over the years and how you got to children with autism and how this is helping them, what you've seen, some success stories and just how, you know, like we talked about the young man that played the piano and sang, what is music doing in their situations where it's helping them and helping their brain?
1: Yeah. Um, Okay, so I have had a big 360-degree shift in the way I work as a therapist with autistic people. And I guess at the very beginning of my um, career for quite a while there, I was really outcomes and goal-focused in terms of, right, we're going to use music to um, support this child to make eye contact or to do this or to do that, and it was very much uh, what I knew to do, and what the world was telling us was the way we should support autistic children. Um, in more recent times, I've really scrapped that whole idea, and I'm a big—I am um, a big believer in supporting children to function at their best. And the beautiful thing about autistic people and all neurodivergent people, really, is that. Um, neurodiversity is basically um, a normal uh, deviation in human population. So it's not pathological or or problematic or um, a broken version of a typical person right. to, ha- to be neurodiverse and to live and behave and express yourself as a neurodivergent person. So I really love the way I work as a music therapist now with autistic people, which is to use music to support them to regulate and mm-hmm. to help them learn ways to self-regulate so music is a really beautiful way to practice breathing for example um, and to regulate the motor cortex so that we don't experience so much hyperactivity um, and to allow our emotions to be expressed so that we don't experience emotional dysregulation mm-hmm. um, so i rather than focus on goal or behavioral outcomes i'm really really aren't passionate about helping even children understand how they can self regulate using music.
0: Back to what we just mentioned earlier, if you don't learn how to do it on your own, you don't heal, you can't grow because that, that external stimuli doesn't, it can't keep going. And then, exactly. and then, and what I always say is you lose time. So if we're, if we're constantly relying on these external stimuli, to what we think help regulate us or keep us pain-free in my situation we lose time in changing that neuroplasticity to be able to do more new better with ease those types of things so i love that and it's you know i'll kind of correlate everything you say to the body because it just makes so much sense like when i started out as a massage therapist i was an athlete i was a gym rat So when I got into body work, I was like just the deep tissue and like, you know, got to get in there and beat it out of them. And and my clients, they loved it for the most part. But then as I started learning, because that's why I got into it, was to learn how to help people heal themselves, you know, be that healer themselves. And I started craniosacral therapy. It was a huge part of that conversion for me is "Mm, I can't beat it out of them. If they're not ready, they're not going to come to the point where they can learn To manage their body the best. So I love that, that you are helping the child, no matter where they are, what stage they are, just function as a better them, which means you're you're very intuitive and the relationship between client and therapist is like a dance. Like I said, it's just, where are you today? How can I help? How can I assist your body? And it's just that constant fluid arrangement of working together. I love that. So let's talk a little bit about the veterans that you've worked with. And I know there was a story about your grandfather that was shot in the arm, right? Yes! Yes. Oh my god, you really have done your research. Yes, I know. Because I, I always say everybody got to where they are because of a story, because of a history. And that's why I love having guests on my podcast because I could talk about this stuff all day long. But my grandfather never got shot in the arm. I can't tell that story, which means I never had that, that, that push and that urge to go towards that demographic. So yeah. he got shot in the arm. And you said that he always said that if I ever met, if I ever ran into that guy, I'd buy him a beer just so he'd know there was yeah. no hard feelings. And yeah. so from there, you, yeah. you, you gravitated towards that demographic. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, it's so
1: cool that you that you've read that story. I um never met my grandfather. He died the year before I was born. Um, but I know I've heard lots of stories about. They used to always joke that you had to be quiet around him because he had a hole in his arm. And when I think about that now, as a therapist, I'm like, you know, he probably had post traumatic stress disorder, yeah. and he, uh, and that's why everyone felt they had to be quiet around him. Um, and I live in a town, ta- well, I grew up in a town where there are, you know, a small regional town where the RSL club, I don't know if you have them in America, the return service leads club. So people who have been veterans, they have this kind of um, space where they can go and they meet and they, um, they, they hang out together and they, I guess they have community and mm-hmm. um, and they're a big part of regional towns in Australia. And so there are a lot of, where I grew up, there are a lot of, of veterans. Um, and it just, music, because music triggers emotion, I found that working with veterans was a very, very sensitive area. One of the most sensitive areas I've had to work in because also, um, bec- me being not a veteran, Um, I couldn't assume to understand what a veteran would need and how much is too much when we're looking at emotional release and where the boundaries are. And I found that veterans themselves didn't know those things either. They didn't know where their boundaries were. Um, Overall, most veterans that I've worked with are extremely shut down and pent up, and that was because that training happened for that to occur so that they could actually, you know, be in the war and, and, and be in the services. Um, And so it's a very, very gentle, gentle, sensitive area to work. Now I have not worked with veterans for some time now, but um, as in everything, we've just said, I think the ideal way of being part of that sort of demographic and and to support those people is to really show them how they can self-regulate so that it can happen in their own time in a safe place, a lot of the time music therapists work in groups and even though they are wonderful and there's a lot of benefits to working in groups, when this work is so deep Mm -hmm. and so raw, it really needs to happen in its own time in the safest of places. So rather than just doing the work in groups, I really love to show, to use music in a way uh, where then they could go home and they could sing sing or they could um, do their breathing exercises or Mm -hmm. listen to records that triggered long-term memories um, in their own world and in their own space. So self-regulation, it always just keeps coming back to that.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And then Mm -hmm. the next group that I know that you've worked with, which has a special place in my heart, because my mom has has worked in um, assisted living for probably over 20 years So you worked for a while in palliative care, which is end of life care. And one of the things that you said about that is that most people aren't afraid of death. They're afraid of scary death. Yeah. Talk about that a little bit.
1: Yeah, it is so true. Death itself, the idea of being dead for most of us isn't really something that we worry about. Uh, but it's the idea of not knowing how it's going to happen and what if it's painful and what if it's scary and what if it's horrible? uh, That is what people worry about. So there's a really beautiful space and potential in palliative care when we're working with someone who's really coming towards the end of their life to um, help support them and validate their fears. And I think validation is far more important um, in this case than trying to um, uh, reassure or, uh, you know, any of that kind of stuff, because no one knows right. we, we are still alive. So we have no idea what it's like.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and validation of fear and being not afraid of fear. This is another way that I've, I've since sort of changed how I work in the beginning. You know, um, when I, when I studied 15 years ago, we didn't understand the brain. Sorry, it was longer. It was probably 20 years ago. We did not understand the brain. I was taught that the brain stopped developing at 25. And I was taught that there are some emotions that are positive and there are some that are negative and this is good and this is bad. And I've had to really like unpack all of that throughout my career.
0: And a good, just little side note is this is why you're not going to get this from many of your medical staff and practitioners, even still today because they have never made that shift to also learn that they are still in what they learned before. And that is all they know. And it's almost like, you can't be mad at them. You can kind of, because they should learn, but that's all they know. That's all they know. And so what you're saying is you have the science that's on your side, but you also learned the other side and you learn how to make them work together. So just everyone out there that's listening, if you're going through any of these things we're talking about, and you're, I hear this every week. I've seen the best physio. I've seen the best Cairo. I've seen Charlotte's, um, you know, NFL specialist for whatever. And I look at their body and I'm like, you have an atrophied leg. No one noticed that you have no muscle structure on that leg. What are they doing with it? You know? So, so when you're out searching, when you're on that journey to find health, if you don't, get what you need with one practitioner, you've got to keep searching. I tell everyone that all the time. If you're not getting what you think you need, and you know, on a gut level, sometimes if you're not putting in the work and doing what they're recommending, that's, that's definitely part of it. But if you're with someone that is this person we're talking about, that's stuck in that, that old, the brain stops learning and moving and growing at 25 you very well probably I don't know what percentage but you probably have that practitioner so if you're if you're struggling with something that's chronic and is not getting well you've got to venture out you've got to venture out to other people so I just wanted to make that very specific to someone listening right now that is like why is this person not helping me it may be because they just don't know so continue on
1: absolutely and what we've learned about the brain in the last 15 years, we didn't even know about neuroplasticity. Mm -hmm. We know there is so much that we know now that, that influences every single paradigm, the education system, the healthcare system, um, just everything.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So anyone who isn't sort of newly upskilled in understanding neurology and what we know about the body and brain and mind to be true now really is working in a paradigm that isn't as effective as it it could be correct so i really now know what emotion is (laughs) emotion is literally energy in motion so it's neither good nor bad positive negative it just is it's just energy in motion and for those of your listeners who you know struggle with that concept of energy again this is science that shows us this there is no there is no physical, actual way that emotion can be a tangible state. So we are not a happy person or an angry person. We are just a human that has emotions, energy in motion that move in and out. Now, ideally we want emotions to flow through us, to come in To be in us for a bit then to flow out. And that is the aim. That is the aim. It is never to stop the anger, to stop the fear. Mm -hmm. Uh, Certainly for someone who is dying and doesn't know what to expect next. If we are trying to stop their fear, we're like denying their whole experience of dying. So our aim is always when it comes to emotion to just... To, ex- to accept that we're, they're in us and then just to also let them flow out. And I, my little analogy for understanding this, and this is how I picture it in my own life, is thats is that I'm on the ocean and sometimes I'm just surfing and I'm standing up and I'm balanced and the wind is in my hair and I'm getting the vitamin D from the sun and I'm great. And then the next thing I get dumped under the wave uh, and sometimes I get straight back up Sometimes I get like a surge of waves, just dump, 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 dump. And every time I try to get out of the water, I'm getting ocean in my nose and I'm like, I'm going to die. I can't survive this. And that's, that's okay. Like that is, they're the sort of feelings that we have as humans. We're not trying to not feel those. Right. It's just acceptance that these emotions
0: come in. That's actually a big problem. That's one of the big problems is when we decide we're not going to feel anymore. Yeah. Exactly.
1: It's a big problem. So when a therapist comes in and this is what used to happen, and this is something that's a really beautiful shift. And and I, I just hope to see this shift expand in terms of more practitioners working in this way is not to try and change somebody's fear or anxiety around dying. It's to support them to experience that and then let it move through them so that they can have all of the feelings. It's only when we grab onto a feeling. And for me, I guess my biggest has been anxiety throughout my life that I've clung on onto when, I, when it's in me, when it flows in and I feel it and I'm like, oh, there's that old anxiety again. I grab onto it and I'm like, I, I'm anxious. I'm anxious. I'm anxious. And as, as long as I'm saying that I'm anxious and I'm holding it, in there and not letting it go, I stay in that state. Mm-hmm. And as long as I keep saying I'm never going to survive this, I'm never going to stop feeling this. I'm I'm basically holding it by two hands and not letting it go. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really about not fixating on our emotions and also not fixating on happiness or joy or the things that we want to feel that we like the feeling of. I kind of think that if we thought of emotions as people, and then we um, we thought of how we think about how we kind of tend to stalk happiness. Like we just always want happiness. That's kind of creepy. How stalkerish <laughs> yeah. that would be. If we really thought of all emotions as like, we've got happiness. He's like the coolest kid in the whole school and we all just want happiness. And yeah. then all of the other ones are just like, mm, not really on our radar. Um, that's it's really not cool. It's really right. stalkish. poor happiness. And we want all the feelings We like, we want the full spectrum of being and we want to feel fear and we want to feel uh, the unknown of what's going to happen when we die. And, and it's a beautiful thing to just be with someone and support them through that. So that's where I'm at with, with working in palliative care.
0: So we're moving from the veterans and palliative care to another demographic is the teenagers that you worked with at the juvenile detention center. So tell us some mm-hmm. of those stories because I'm sure there are some amazing stories and changes you saw and then some are just like, can't win them all. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, yeah, both.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, that
1: is the best job. When I worked uh, for three years in the juvenile detention center, it was the best job I've had. It was so great. Um, the thing that most got me was that all of the young people who were in juvenile detention had a background and a story and a history that showed that they were unable to develop emotionally, mm-hmm. that they were unable to uh, regulate. They hadn't been taught and they'd come from, they'd been Um, you know, part of families who their parents didn't know how to do that either. Mm -hmm. Uh, And their parents were modelling behaviours based on what they'd been modelled and and what they knew. And everybody was self-medicating. So alcohol and drugs was always involved because um, these young people that I was working with had no other way of regulating Right. They had been taught and their families didn't know either so it was such a generational thing and it was such a beautiful way of learning about the world learning that it was not about their crime and it was not about their behavior and there was no bad people um and so for me i had such an intense um learning experience just from working in that environment mm. um, i actually found one of the one of the best aspects of working in juvenile detention is that everyone had to come to their music therapy sessions. There was nothing else to do. There was no <laughs> options there. That was just what they did every week. Whereas, uh, you know, in a lot of other places I've worked in alternate education where I was working with um, people who weren't um, uh, in locked up in a detention center or in prison, but they were expelled from school or like they, they, for some reason couldn't go to school. And then they had to come to old ed, but it was sort of, A choice it wasn't they hadn't been mandated by court and so that you know you'd never see them Mm. so it was really cool that i worked with these people these these young people ongoingly every single week and because they didn't have an option they had to be there they really gave so much to it
0: yeah Um,
1: and we really focused a lot on emotions there as well but what we did was lyrical analysis so we would listen to songs that resonated uh there was a lot of sort of tupac and um there was a lot of rap, and we would I would print out the lyrics, and we'd look at them, and we'd circle words that were feelings, or we'd circle words that were behaviors, and we we'd try and prize them apart so that so that they could start to understand the difference between what was going on, and we'd we'd use the context of the songs that they really resonated with as a way of just having a deeper understanding into um, them as people.
0: Mm-hmm. I think that's a great example, again, of meeting someone where they are and mm-hmm. helping them facilitate whatever it is they need in that moment. And that's another breakdown that I see is practitioners that have the textbook knowledge, the anatomy knowledge on my end of how, of what, okay, this person has this thing they need to, I need to do this, this, and this to them to fix them. Yes. Yes. And that just doesn't work. So it's, it's great. Again, I already knew you were this way, but knowing that that's what you do, it is, I don't care what your diagnosis is. Where are you today? And yeah. so that, that's amazing. And I just knew that would be another success story. But another story I want to hear about is your 2011 trip to Cambodia. Oh my gosh. You're such an adventurous <laughs> person. <laughs> yes. Oh,
1: uh, yeah. So what was well,
0: that like? So that was just a
1: trip with girlfriends. Mm. But as I do, I find all the opportunities where there's something musical I can be doing and I jump in. Um, And I've always done that throughout my whole life. That's actually the thing that makes me a music therapist because my most authentic expression of me being me is just doing that. It's not deciding to be a music therapist and then going to study to be a music therapist. It's just that my whole life I've gone, uh, I've just felt compelled in my most authentic way to bring a music experience into so many situations. Yeah. So uh, while we were in Cambodia, we were just staying at the beach and I was just with my girlfriends and we were doing our thing, but we met um, a local community of children who uh, were didn't have permanent homes and we met a couple of people who had started a bit of like a community house, very informal, mm-hmm. nothing, you know, set up or funded or anything like that. Just a really informal place. It was more like a hut where they were providing a bit of activities for kids who would just spend the days running around and not having um, school to go to or anything else like that. So I decided to just sort of come along with my guitar. And um, one of the things I found in my travels overseas, uh, especially in Asian countries, is that the Western the Western instruments are such a, especially like a guitar is such a novelty and mm. so exciting. And everyone just wants to touch the strings and feel them. So it's really back to basics. When I'm, when I was working in Cambodia and when I was in India, I was literally not having to do anything really that thought out. It was the most basic stuff, like just strum the guitar and let those children touch their fingers on the string and feel the vibration and then move my fingers to different chords and let them strum it and hear themselves play a chord. And those things were just so exciting. And these children, so the outcome here was just a a communal experience and joy, just so much joy. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm. That, that reminds me of another thing that I like to bring up, especially in my background and family. I have a lot of Christian um, people in my realm of influence and, When they hear a lot of these things like frequency and music bowls, they kind of get a little nervous, but I I like to remind them there are biblical principles around God wanting us to be involved in group music. He asks us to be involved in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. He created, if you believe in a creator, he created the brain to be able to communicate and use that And he asked us to do those things so that it's not just, you know, a foo-foo-y thing or a woo-woo thing. There's science behind it. There's biblical principle behind it. So if, if you are struggling as a Christian or as a believer, a spiritual believer of any type, there is precedence on all levels, scripturally, scientifically, anecdotally, that music was designed, especially as a community, to help regulate our body. So I always like to bring that into someone's awareness is this isn't an opinion of anyone. It is proven on every level. So that's just, I think it's, and I always like to say this too, when it comes to body work, cause there's so many styles of body work and people always ask me, should I try this? Is that good? Or, you know, in, in my industry, they always come out with a new certification. So you have to go get that class and pay the fee and then get that acronym behind your name. But I always say if it's it's true good work, no matter what the um, application of it is, there is some underlying commonality and similarity with it. So with music, across professions, across religious beliefs, across nationalities, and all of those things, music is a common thread. So I think that's awesome. That's what you experienced, that you were in a strange place with people you didn't know, had no idea what you were about, but it drew you together and you had this amazing, intimate experience.
1: Yeah. And I think my own, I don't think I've actually even written about this, but my own beginnings of my musical life was, I'm pretty certain, my experience of music through going to church and singing in the choir and singing in community with everyone there um, and being part of the arrangement of music that would happen in church and all of that stuff, like without that fostering, that constant fostering, uh, throughout my entire growing up life, mm. um, I don't think I would have had such a solid foundation in then being able to learn more about music and being able to expand the way it's used across all boundaries. Like you say, not yeah. non-denominational, but just across the global community. Yeah.
0: That's awesome. So tell me about melodic intonation therapy used with stroke patients and other brain injuries.
1: Uh Uh-huh. Oh gosh. I love melodic intonation therapy. So to get a little bit technical on you, there are two parts of the brain um, in the left hemisphere that are in charge of our ability to communicate. One of them is called the broker's area which is in charge of our expressive language skills. So, our ability to talk and to communicate with words. That's all run by the Brokers area. And right next door is a little spot called Wernicke's area. And Wernicke's is in control of our receptive language skills. So, us understanding what is being said to us or understanding what words mean and what word to put with what thing that we're trying to get across. So. They're two little spots and they're in control of basically our two biggest functions as humans, which is to understand communication and to be able to communicate with our voice, with our words. Mm -hmm. Now it's kind of a weird design of the brain that it decided to have two tiny, tiny spots only on one hemisphere in charge of such a big deal. I do not know why the brain was designed that way. (laughs) If we could redesign the way the brain looked, I would have those on both hemispheres and I would have them quite to be bigger spots. The other thing is because these these parts of the brain are so tiny, it's actually very difficult to access our, our ability to speak and to make sense of words when we are at all run down or not functioning at our best or pent up with emotion. You know, like when you've had a fight with your husband or wife and then you can't think of what to say because in that moment you're so emotionally... Yeah. Um, you know, active yeah. that your brain just can't access the brokers and the Wernicke's areas. And it's not till the next day or during the night when you're like, Oh my God, I should have said this. <laughs> um, and that's because the emotions have, have pared back a bit and all of a sudden you can access the parts of the brain that are in charge of language and think clearly. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I've got all these good things I should have said in that moment. So all of us experience um, this um, sort of back and forth with the Brokers and Wernicke's areas in terms of how easily we can access it and sometimes how difficult it is to access. Um, but people who have had a traumatic brain injury, like an accident or who have had a stroke and who have damaged or who have dementia or a degenerative brain condition and have damaged their left hemisphere, often are unable to access these two parts of the brain in charge of all our language skills.
0: Hmm.
1: so we use melody uh melody is largely uh there's no pinpointed area in the brain that is in charge of musical functions because it's such a whole brain experience Hmm. but we know that when we experience melody alone it's largely dominant in the right hemisphere and we can also if we look at language and singing um it's really just a spectrum of the one thing so right now i am speaking with no melody but as i add melody into the mix it becomes more melodic and all of a sudden i'm singing <laughs> so see what i did there i'm just speaking but well i'm taking it from one side of the brain uh, from a one side of the brain function to a whole brain function just by adding more melody in the mix yeah but so when we use singing uh as, a form, as something that people can still do even though they have damaged their left hemisphere. Um, what we're doing essentially in rehabilitating their speech that way is by creating new neural pathways. We're not fixing the lesion or fixing the area of damage, we're creating new neural pathways and new ways for these people to communicate.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and then so we start, it's quite a melodic thing to begin with because the more melody involved in their speech the more easier it is to access. And then over time, it takes a lot of practice and a lot of repetition over and over. And then slowly the melody is reduced and reduced and reduced until people are actually speaking. It's They're still not using those parts of the brain that are damaged. Yeah. They are using alternate neural pathways that have been trained.
0: That reminds me of a story in a book. I can't remember which book it was. I think it was The Brain That Heals Itself. There were stories. Mm-hmm. I think that was the book. But there was stories of a professor that had a severe stroke and his son was some type of osteopath or rehab specialist or something. And they were basically told he's going to be a vegetable. It's just, you know, it's a very, very extensive damage. And both he, the, the father and the son were like, we don't have anything to lose. Let's do what we have to do. So they started him crawling because he couldn't walk, hardly move anything unassisted. And they started him, actually, they started rocking back and forth, just like the baby, because you have to Mm -hmm. start there. So they started him rocking back and forth, eventually crawling. And long story short, he recovered, was rock climbing and all kinds of things into his diet of old age, I think. Um, Rock climbed everything. And in his autopsy, they looked at his brain and they said, we cannot understand how he was able to do the things he did because his brain was so severely damaged, but it did exactly what you said. It created, okay, so there's so much damage right here, but I've got all this other space. I can make new stuff. I can make new pathways and figure out how to do things in a different way, but still do the things.
1: Yeah, it's just incredible. It's so, the brain, I love the brain so much. i could talk about this stuff all day long. I know.
0: Yes, me too. So let's kind of switch. So that's all like, you know, um, diagnoses and chronic issues. So we're going to switch our our intention over to self-care, preventative care, how we make ourselves ready for traumatic things in life because they are coming. Hard times Mm -hmm. are coming. So that's what I try to get my clients to do as well is don't just try to get healthy once you're sick. Let's yes. keep your body so healthy that when things come at you, you're kind of thrown off track a little bit, but the severity of the symptoms are less and the yes. time that you experience them is shorter. Yes. So, with what you do, um, I think I said this in the beginning. One of the things you talked about before, you don't tell someone to calm down. Yes. It's never going to work. So, what yes. is entrainment? Okay. So entrainment is when two external
1: factors meet, I guess, or, or match becoming sync. Um, but what we want to do if we are working with someone or if we ourselves or our children are very highly aroused in a heightened state of anxiety and it might be being expressed as anger. So what anxiety, so in the brain, it's called survival mode in the body. It's called anxiety, but it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So our, physiological experience is anxiety and the neurologic function of what's happening is survival mode. So they're basically, they are exactly the same thing, but they're just different words for different expressions of them. Mm-hmm. So, um,
0: Oh gosh, how did I even get to that? What were we even talking about? The two okay. uh, don't tell someone to calm down. <laughs> That's right. So what we want
1: Uh, to do with entrainment is to match or connect with someone in a heightened state and then move them towards the state we want them to be in. If we are um, telling someone to calm down is a bit like somebody standing on the top rung of a ladder and then us wanting them to just jump to the ground,
0: Mm.
1: like from this heightened state to calm regulated state. Mm. And we're just like, calm down. It's like, we're just asking them to jump and land on the ground safely. And that's, unhealthy and dangerous and it's not the best way of doing it we want to we want to get up there on the ladder with our people and we want to step 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 down together especially when it comes to our children because it's really important to maintain a connection with our children and for them to know that we understand and
0: um validate where they are at when they are on that top step that gives me chill bumps to hear you say that because that in childhood is where so many of these um issues in a in as an adult come to play because in my own case I was, I learned to zip it so that I wouldn't get in trouble. I learned to have a stone cold poker face so that I wouldn't show emotion. So I wouldn't get in trouble. And that comes to the throat that comes to cervical that comes to a lot of the things in the head that will manifest themselves later in life as chronic pain issues. I just love that you're reminding people of that. It's not that you don't want your child to experience or demonstrate fear or anger or disagreement. It's how you meet them. Again, it's that dance. So it's not, it's not only with, you know, your parent to child or spouse to spouse. It's also with yourself. Like I said earlier, telling yourself to calm down or I need to stop being so stressed out it does no good because you saying that doesn't do anything to help your body understand it. Um, so and that again, just goes back to the music.
1: Yeah. So music is a great way, a really great way of meeting our child or ourselves on the top ladder and walking down together. So when we are in a heightened state, um, we are, our brain is generally very hyper-stimulated it's 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 fast we we might be hyperactive we might be not be able to calm our mind we're thinking a lot we're having a lot of fears we've got all this internal high high speed stuff going on we just can't calm down just by being told to calm down that just doesn't work um but our brain is like i've said music is to the brain as breath is to the lungs really um and we know that when our brain experiences music, it can completely change the way it is working. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, music therapists all around the world, really, really love using the ISO principle. And the ISO principle is a music therapy um, principle in which we, use music to match where our client is at and then we move them to the place where we need them to be. So I find in this case, it's really great to start with uh, you could make a little playlist and you could just have three or four songs on there. The first song, the tempo of the song might be faster or the intensity of the song is faster. And it's a song that our child or ourselves or whoever is in this heightened state uh, resonates with. So it sort of matches their musical identity. So we know that they're going to, be okay with this music being played. And then we are able to match their intensity levels with the music. And then the next song on the playlist is a little bit more chill. So it might be a little slower, the genre might be a little bit more relaxed, There might be a little bit less, whatever way that looks for you. And then we might get to the third song and all of a sudden the third song might be sort of 80 beats per minute, which is around about the resting heart rate. And what we've done is we've used music to to match them, to connect with them on the top ladder and to step down, down, down. And then all of a sudden we come to the resting heart rate in a state of regulation because we've used music to move them to that place.
0: So talking about regulation, let's talk about the vagus nerve. So the vagus
1: nerve, it is like one of the most important parts of our body that everyone needs to know about, that not many people know about really um and the, the the vagus nerve is basically our first port of call in terms of backing away from anxiety reducing anxiety or avoiding a state or an experience of anxiety mm-hmm. um i'm not going to go into too much science around the vagus nerve because i do get confused <laughs> with the nervous system myself uh, because there's just so much to know but if you think of um, if you just visualize the nervous system running up the trunk of your body, up through past your gut, past your chest, your throat, up through your face and then connecting with your prefrontal cortex. Oh, past your ears. That's where <laughs> it,
0: it comes out right here. So it comes out right between the, ear, the jaw and the mastoid process. That's where it comes out. Ah, so it's like two big branches that stem yeah. out and yep. you here. Yep. Goes down awesome. and touches every organ. That's yeah. You that that I have a queasy stomach. Uh huh. Yep. Now, how does music help us with that? So there are multiple
1: ways that we can use music to activate or tone the vagus nerve. So ultimately, what we want is a toned. We want vagal tone, and that's just like a muscle. So you. You've got no muscles in your arms. You go to the gym, you flex them, flex them, flex them. And all of a sudden they become toned and you can do more with your arms. Uh, It's the same with the vagus nerve. We just want vagal tone, which means we can access the benefits of our vagus nerve quickly and often and easily without too much, you know, too much hard work. Mm -hmm. Singing is a fabulous way of, of uh, toning the vagus nerve. When we sing, Uh, we engage the diaphragm or, okay, let's take a step back. Breathing. (laughs) Breathing is the best way to tone the vagus nerve because when we take a deep breath breath in, um, our lungs expand, our diaphragm is um, lifted and that triggers the vagus nerve Um, and all of a sudden that becomes active. And then our parasympathetic nervous system, um switches on uh and our heart rate and our respiratory rate comes down it's really impossible to like if you think of an anxious person or a person in a state of dysregulation and we think about their breathing and we visualize that we can see shoulders and chest really high and just going up down up down up down up down but when we take a deep breath in a really deep breath into our lungs and our diaphragm expands, all of a sudden everything changes. It's impossible to do high, fast breaths when we are taking a big, slow, deep, controlled breath. Mm-hmm. Singing is a brilliant way of doing controlled breathing because it is impossible to breathe in as we sing out. So, if I was to give an example of singing the song that we were, the, the way we found each other through every little cell, I take a deep breath in and then I go, Every little cell in my body is happy. Every little cell in my body is well. Now that was one out breath, right? And then I breathe in and I sing the next line. It doesn't matter what song we're singing when we're singing, it's an out breath, and then we breathe in and we sing again. So uh, singing out loud is just such a gentle, non-invasive way that we don't have to train or practice breathing exercises, but still be participating in controlled breathing activities Um, and this is why it's so beneficial for parents to sing with their children out loud together and for group choirs and to be singing in community with other people because everybody collectively is having a regulatory experience the vagus nerves are becoming active together in a group everybody's experiencing dopamine because of this Um, and then everybody has a heightened state of connection because they are in this experience together. So anything you can do with singing with other people just powerhouses the whole experience. But even if you were just by yourself, if you were to sing out loud, basically you are experiencing controlled breathing. You are activating the vagus nerve also because of um, the act of singing, the way our throat moves, um, our voice box, our jaw, our tongue, our muscles around our neck and our, our cheeks and our jaw and everything, that is a very active, that really activates the vagus nerve as well, just because of the positioning of, of all of those parts that we use in singing and the vibration that it creates.
0: Mm-hmm. So anyone with TMJ, cervical issues, um, thoracic outlet syndrome, all of those things will be helped by singing. And if you just can't get over that threshold of singing, humming still helps as well. Um, bouncing on a trampoline, gargling, all of those things still do exactly what she is talking about of stimulating this area and helping it regulate. So that's, like you said, the vagus nerve is a huge part of the entire body finding itself with regulation. Let's talk a little bit about sleep. Mm-hmm. One of my other favorite topics I already love. You already brought up one thing about like maybe because I always talk to people about a bedtime routine with our children. We have a routine with them. I always say we are just big babies. Yes, We, we need to have a routine too. We know we are just way up here maintaining a very high threshold. And like you, what you said was maybe play a couple songs that are like high intensity, you know, quicker beat and have that playlist for your nighttime along with the other things that I teach my clients and let that playlist help bring you down. So, yeah. um, specifically, what are some other things with, about music that can help with us preparing to sleep?
1: Well, um, okay, so one of the things that I really like to do <clears throat> is I listen to audiobooks. So, audiobooks is not necessarily singing melody. This is what I love when we sort of when we really dissect what music is and we see each separate element, just hearing the spoken word, reading a book is so rhythmic. There is so much going on there that helps us to regulate. Um, Firstly, our motor cortex, which is the part of our brain in charge of all our movements. One of the strongest, most dominant neural pathways in the brain is between our motor cortex and our auditory input. So the things we hear And the way the part of the brain that tells us how our body should move are intrinsically connected. So on such a deep level, which is why if you go to a live gig, you listen to some music, it's almost impossible for you not to move some part of your body. Even if you're not a dancer, you might tap a toe, you might move a hip. You might even just have an internal um, contraction of muscles as, as a very, you know, we experience that internally. That's still happening. Even if we're not sort of outwardly dancing in front of everyone. Yeah. So when we hear, when our brain hears somebody reading a book, um, and this is a beautiful thing if you can get your husband or your wife or someone to read to you as an adult, we tend to not read out loud as adults to each other, but it's such a beautiful, excellent strategy. Um, and this rhythmic procession of language that's being read all sort of about the, the same tempo, we don't speed up or slow down or we don't get experimental with reading, we just read. Mm-hmm really gives the motor cortex um, a signal about staying regulated and um, that allows us then to be able to experience I guess balance and that is one of the first steps in then being able to calm down that come down the steps of those of the ladder so when I'm listening to audible um, if I'm in a highly aroused state in terms of I've been working all day or I've been thinking about things or I'm anxious or I can't seem to calm down and I can tell that I'm a bit jittery. I will listen to audio books on a little bit faster than like on 1.25 where the narrator is speaking faster than the average voice. It just speeds it up a little bit. And then I know that I am able to engage in that more easily. Have you ever had that experience when you're a little bit anxious or worked up about something and you're trying to read. And this happens to me a lot at bedtime. I'll be reading, but I'll still be really highly alert. And I just can't concentrate on the words. And I'm rereading the sentences over and over. And I'm like, I get through a page and I'm like, I didn't even take any (laughs) of that. I'm just thinking about my problems in life. (laughs) Um, But if we are to, because we can't connect in that experience when we are in a heightened state. Mm. So listen to an audio book. Being read a little bit faster than what we normally would allows us to connect with that, and once we 're in and once we 're listening, we can switch the speed down to one, which is um, the the average uh, pace at which someone would read their book, and all of a sudden we are engaged, so we have effectively taken ourselves from the top step of the ladder and brought ourselves down wow yeah it's just it 's really so simple. I do this when i 'm reading to my children who are quite hyperactive um i'll start off reading the book fast and by the time we get to the end i've really slowed down and they don't know that i'm doing the iso principle on them yeah but i'm from the top step and down and we really need we really really do need to reparent ourselves in terms of putting these processes and routines in place in our own lifestyle because our parents used to do this for us like you said as children and then all of a sudden we became adults and we focus our routines and our children and we, we forget about doing it with ourselves. Yeah. So um, listening to music uh, before bed, especially music that is repetitive, the brain loves music that has very simple melody. So not so much melody that's like really experimental and fast and might be moving all over the place, but melodies that uh, we attribute to nursery rhymes and lullabies especially. Our brain loves those. They are super predictable. They are very small intervals in terms of the music doesn't sort of jump all over the place. The tune doesn't jump all over the place. And our brain loves simple melody more than anything. So if we can be listening to music at bedtime or as we're trying to sort of reduce our activity levels and, and, you know, lullabies have a purpose. This is why, this is why we listen to lullabies. Nice. Um, Find music that you resonate with that is a simple hymns are brilliant because they're almost always a simple repetitive melody or tune that's played over and over. And that just creates an environment of predictability. Like I was saying before, our brain hears these melodies being played over and over and it goes, oh, I understand this melody. It's making sense. And then the brain feels safe.
0: Mm. So when
1: the brain... Safe out. We are automatically going to regulate, and we are going to be able to fall asleep because our brain is no longer teetering on the edge of survival mode, but it is now feeling calm and cool and relaxed and ready to sleep.
0: It's a constant negotiation. Yeah. If if when I hear people say, "I just I don't sleep good at night," I don't I don't sleep good. Oh, so is that just how it's going to be for forever? Yeah. (laughs) What are we doing to work with our body? to help it sleep. So that's two amazing, great tools. Someone can start implementing tonight to help start sleep training yourself. We sleep trained our kids. Now we need to do it again um, for ourselves so we can function better. So moving from all of this research and science and the brain and all those technical things, I want to get to my next favorite part of the podcast Is your personal story and adventure in life, and how you got to be who you are today? I think you said you like, who was I in 2014? I have no idea. I feel the same way. It's crazy where we where we come from, where we've been, and you've had quite an adventure. So you, at 17, tore your diaphragm laughing. (laughs) Yes. Please tell me that story. I love that story.
1: Oh my gosh. I just love that you know all this stuff about me. So (laughs) I had the flu. It's probably the only time in my life where I've actually really had the flu. Mm. And it was really with me for weeks. And I had weeks off school and I was so run down and I was so sore and I was so weak. My physical body was so weak and I was just starting to get better. And I was, um, because I was in my final year of high school I um, wanted to get in there and start finishing off some of my art projects and just gently, I wasn't still back at school, but I was going in in the afternoons after everyone left just to work on my art. And there was another guy in there at the same time and he said something that was funny and I just burst out in a burst of laughter and just pop went the diaphragm or the intercostal muscle and all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. It just happened so quickly and I was like, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't stand, I couldn't move. I was like, what the hell was that? And I really panicked and yeah. I really don't know what happened after that. Um, other than that, I somehow got my mum to me, I somehow got to the hospital. <laughs> I got a jab in the butt <laughs> and then I was on anti-inflammatory meds for ages. But what I did was have bone therapy and I, because I was concerned about how this would affect my breathing because it was coming towards the end of the year. And as a musician, I had my big year 12 music exams coming up and I was a saxophone player. So I needed to be able to breathe. (laughs) And I was amazed at how quickly just working on these um, meridians and having Bowen therapy only a few times really helped me gain the strength back, Mm -hmm. not just from this um, accident with my diaphragm, but through having the flu for so long, Mm -hmm. uh, how my capacity to breathe came back so beautifully and didn't affect my exams at all. And it went really well
0: so it's so interesting my daughter is a volleyball player and she she's a scholarship freshman right now but her senior year she had she ended up with a severe herniation that took her out of her senior year of volleyball so i know personally what it's like to watch your child just be devastated that they can't do the thing that they love can you go back to remember like, so you did these, you did say Bowen therapy. Uh So was that your parents that, that pushed you in that direction? Or did you choose to go with that therapy? And tell us a little bit about those emotions that you had when you were faced with, like, I can't breathe right now. And I have to play this instrument. You know, what kind of was that thought process? The actual part about playing the instrument
1: came later. And when it actually happened, it was just fear. I was like, what just happened in my body and also mixed with that was shame which is interesting and just a reflection on the the things that i hold within myself the stories i tell myself i felt shame about having this experience in front of someone else and then having to call my mom Mm -hmm. at school and not knowing um not wanting to tell the other person that was there with me when it happened not wanting them to know what was going on in me in that moment i wanted to just disappear Uh, which was really a really interesting thing to experience because obviously there was no reason to experience shame realistically. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a pattern for me. (laughs) Um, And so the fear and the shame and the embarrassment of it, that is what really, really took me. And then it wasn't until after when I was feeling the pain of recovering and not enjoying having anti-inflammatory meds, you know, um, that I started to feel uh to look sort of more towards the future and then think oh my music exams and that's when i started to to worry i think there was less fear involved then but more just kind of like um worry about my future i guess that's that was more when anxiety kicked in i was lucky because my saxophone teacher her mum was a bone therapist wow um, and so whilst I was, you know, my dad's a pharmacist and I was having my pharmaceutical treatment here involved as well. And I do believe that I probably needed it at that point, mm-hmm. but also to be able to then have access to a bone therapist who was also in the medical model. Cause she was a nurse in the hospital and a bone therapist. Um, I was able to combine and have a holistic treatment, which felt really good for me, felt good for my parents and it worked. Um, so I was really, I mean, I guess that's a really early example in my life of being able to access a multi, um, modality in terms of my own healthcare and to see how successful it was.
0: Awesome. I mean, I couldn't have said it any better. It's the marriage of the two. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So you have two children, Maple Mm -hmm. and Chester. Daughter is older. Son is younger. Same with mine, but they're 19 and 16. Um, so you I know like what's that About eight and five yes I know so they're younger and yeah. more busy
1: just, as yours are
0: no that's awesome yeah. I always say it's just another kind of crazy so when they're little it's like constant care when they're older it's like constant like worry and they need more stuff and more money and so but it's always something but I know like with my kids they have a vernacular and an awareness of people and anatomy that no other person's child has because of what I do. So I'm sure that your children have an understanding and an appreciation and implement the things that you're talking about again, out of habit, but it's because you've shown them. So just talk a little bit about how they've experienced at their young age, you know, what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, well, one of the most beautiful uh, stories and examples of this is when my daughter, Maple, started kindergarten, which is what we have here when children are four, so before Mm -hmm. they start primary school. Mm -hmm. Um, She was nervous and she just put on her little uniform and then she she ran off and took it off and she was hiding and she, um, she said to me, I went to get her and she looked up at me and she said, carry me back like a bird. And I didn't really know what that meant, but the imagery was so beautiful. She was asking me to pick her up, I think, like a mama bird, pick up a baby bird and maybe put it back in the nest. And so I picked her up and she started singing and this became our first chant or our first melodic mantra, as I like to call them. Um, and she just started singing, carry me back like a bird, carry me back like a bird. And she just started singing it over and over. And I had not got all music therapists on her and being like, it out nothing like that she just instinctively drawn on what she'd seen me do i guess and she started expressing herself with beautiful imagery in a little phrase that doesn't mean need to have cognitive sense but in its beautiful way it makes so much sense because of the imagery that goes with it the melody was simple she started singing it over and over again so she was she was calming herself down with the breathing she didn't know any of this she'd just seen me do similar and she'd obviously just instinctively expressed herself in that moment in such a beautiful way. And I teach people that, that song all the time and we still sing it a lot. And it's really, really popular. I sing it at all my workshops and there's a lot of people in the world singing Carry Me Back Like a Bird now.
0: That is just amazing. In yeah. March of 2020, I couldn't think of anything better that we could learn is to show our children. How to self-regulate by self-regulating, yes, which is being conscious and cautious of what we are saying and doing with our bodies and showing them by our own practice, how to self-regulate. That is just, if anyone gets anything out of this podcast, yeah. your kids will do what you do, how yeah. you handle trauma and fear and anxiety is how they are going to handle trauma, fear, and anxiety until maybe someone will teach them something different down the road, like a music therapist. Yeah. But let's teach them that when they're young so they don't have to have such a struggle. So that, that's just yeah. beautiful. I love that. I, can, I just couldn't ask for anything better that you've said so far. I love that. So teach your children how to self-regulate by example. Because again, you can't tell your children to calm down when you can't be told to calm down.
1: Exactly. And in fact, we could learn a lot about self-regulation from our children because they are constantly expressing their emotions. They stomp, they slam, they tell you what they think. They cry Mm -hmm. all the time. Uh, They do all the things that allow the emotion to move through them. They are very good at not becoming pent up in emotion the way us adults are because we tend to, keep the emotions inside us and release them at, a, at what we think is an, emo- is, is an appropriate and very grown up way of doing it. But usually we try to uh, cognitively rationalize our emotions away, make sense of them in a way that we think, oh, well, now that makes sense that emotional go, but it doesn't. So allowing our children to see us regulate mm-hmm. and the things that we need to do, like singing and breathing gives children Uh, the opportunity to witness it and to then give them permission to do it themselves. But if we also watch the way they do it, the way they leave a room when they're not coping in that room, Mm -hmm. it might be out and yelling at everyone as they go, but they know that they have to do it. Yes. Um, They're not people pleasing.
0: Right. And
1: so we can watch, we can learn a lot from the way they regulate as well. It's a beautiful connection relationship there.
0: Absolutely. So you have two children and you are married. But you didn't get married until later in your relationship, right? Uh So how, what was that process like? And how was that decision made to wait to get married till later?
1: Well, look, I was nagging my husband all the time. I was like, why? I went, when are you going to propose? What is going on? Uh, So (laughs) it was the cause of much, much of me going, come on, come on. What are we waiting for? But essentially when we met, we, it was one of those things where, um, I kind of, the day I met him, I was like, oh, I've been waiting for you. Like, where have you been all my life? And we had a mutual, just instant knowing. And it was, it was interesting because we weren't romantically involved. Like we just met, um, you know, randomly through a friend. Um, and I had, he definitely wasn't someone who I would normally <laughs> like, if I thought I had a checklist of all the things I was looking for in a man um and he wasn't like ticking all the boxes <laughs> but it was greater than that it was an instant knowing yeah. and um our relationship started really quickly after that and it was just such a yes feeling mm. um and we both felt so strongly and so quickly that we had children waiting for us and we actually sort of we sat with that and it was it was a bit difficult because we'd only been together um for a very short amount of time and we knew that we were being called to have children and we were also knew that that would be difficult for our families to understand and our friends to understand because although we were in our 30s when we met um you know it was still a very very soon we we became pregnant with Maple when we'd been together for 3 months so we had to consciously sit with that and go this is going to be difficult for other people but but we really really do know and we're trusting we're trusting what, what is being brought to us mm. and we are feeling that there's this child waiting and we're ready and we're here and we decided to go ahead and follow our path anyway, despite that it would, might be difficult for others to understand. Um, and so we actually, we actually invited Maple in. We sort, of, we sort of one night just went, you know, baby, if you are there and if you are ready, we're here ready for you. Oh gosh, I'm getting teary just thinking about it again. Um, and then we were pregnant straight away. She was there. She was ready. Um, so, I mean, it was a little bit, it was a little bit scary, I guess, it all happening this way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also felt really right. And we just followed all of the signs and the feelings and just, you know, our instincts around it all. So
0: um, talking earlier about your tendency to have feelings of shame. Had you at that point learned how to be aware of those? And did that help you better communicate to people that maybe didn't agree with your timeline? Were you able to communicate better or were you still in the learning process? I was still in that.
1: I was still in that process. I was still a people pleaser. I definitely said Everything, I just made sure that whenever people were say, whenever I was talking to people about it, I was saying whatever I thought they needed to hear. Mm-hmm. And I would not, I would have, I would have been, but, but, you know, people also didn't actually disagree or show too much concern about it to us. So I wasn't put in a in a situation where I had to act. They were potentially talking about us, yeah, and worrying about us. And that makes sense too because if my child was having a baby with someone they'd met three months ago, Um, I would also have, you know, thoughts that I would probably want to talk about with someone. Um, So that was all fine. Um, But I certainly at that point in my life was still very much a people pleaser and it was difficult to, um, to just follow my instinct. But I, but as much as I have been a people pleaser my whole life and I have experienced, and I do fall into a sense of shame a lot, I still have always had such instinctual urges that I know need to be followed that I have always been good at following what's really right for me and then feeling shame about it afterwards. So the shame has still always been there, but I've always still acted on what I know to be true for me.
0: Right. And that's, you know, we're always the little child that was ashamed. We're always the little child that was hurt. That's what people need to understand. Healing doesn't mean you never have those memories again or you never have those feelings again. Again, it's how long do they affect you and how exacerbated are the feelings? Because I'm, I'll walk into a room sometimes and I'll, if I'm not familiar with people or if I don't like where I am, I'll just put exactly. it down, yeah. you know? And I have to be aware of that because people see my face as something totally different than what's on the inside. So knowing that that's just your default, it's your default from what you learned. But so how, how do you deal with that now, though? So what, cause I know that time frame, even though that might be your default setting, it's that awareness of it and then check in with it. So t- how is that? How does that play out for you to where you're like, you're that way for a second, but then you reorient. How does that look for you?
1: Yeah. I now recognize when I'm experienced a sense of shame and I don't, I don't try. So firstly, what I used to do when I recognized I was in this pattern, then I'd feel really bad about experiencing shame and tell myself, you shouldn't be feeling this, which made it worse Mm -hmm. because I was not supporting myself in that moment either. And so now I recognize feelings of shame and I just let them come and go, but I work to, I I've become really aware of my patterns. I've become aware of, of the stories I've told myself since childhood and potentially how those stories have arisen And I've really worked hard to just experience them and accept them and shine light on them, Mm -hmm. shower them in love rather than feeling um, as as a way of healing, I guess. And then I use my melodic mantra, which is I come up with affirmations that I need to hear, things that I need to believe, what I need to know, and I sing it. So it's like a spoken mantra, but when you sing because you're adding music to the mix, you're activating your whole brain and you're really helping the whole process of neuroplasticity along. So at the same time as I'm becoming aware of, of patterns such as shame in my life and accepting them and not trying to shun them, just accepting that they're going to come and go, I'm also rewiring my belief system and, and who I am and what I deserve and, and, you know, all of those things by having a daily practice of melodic mantra. mm
0: mm-hmm. Like you said earlier, it's that acknowledgement, like when you deal with your people, just acknowledging it, just saying it. And if it's writing it down, if it's talking it, if whatever, it's, it's when we ignore it and suppress it, that it becomes a problem. It's not a problem to feel all these feelings and your, your body will be healthier and it will do better by you if you just acknowledge and experience it and sit in that moment, like you said be aware of it, be in it, but then like, okay, now let's get up. Cause we know that's not the truth. Yeah. So, totally. Yeah. Constantly
1: focus on regulating, constantly focused on just making sure I can be as balanced as possible and not caught up or fixated on the feelings, not grabbing hold of shame, but just letting shame be there and move out when shame is ready. Um, yes, yeah, it's, it's been made a big difference in my own life.
0: So outside of the shame, um, working through that, you also dealt with some postpartum depression. Is that right?
1: Yeah. Well, here's where my story gets super interesting. So I, um, really started to shut down when I was pregnant with Maple. I really started to do things that I used to do in my early childhood, uh, that I hadn't done for a while because I was a musician. So I was playing music every day for hours and this really regulated me when I was pregnant. I was very, very sick Mm -hmm. every day the whole time I was unable to play music. I was basically unable to open my mouth. (laughs) I was was that sick. And so all of a sudden my regulatory sort of activity had been gone um, had been taken from me, I guess. And I was unable to access music the way I had throughout the whole rest of my life. I started noticing patterns in my body doing things that I'd done as a child,
0: Mm. which
1: was like counting in threes a lot inside my head and finding it difficult to talk like finding it difficult to access my Wernicke's area and to be able to know what words to go with what and to have the processing speed that I needed to be able to keep up in conversation and these sort of things just got more and more and bigger and bigger and um after Maple was born I sort of um I don't think I really talked to anyone about it and then by the time I was pregnant with Chester, which was a couple of years later. Um, I was really struggling to function on any level. So I was finding it difficult. I couldn't make a cup of tea. Like I couldn't finish the act of pouring myself a cup. There was all these things going on. And so of course I was diagnosed with postnatal depression because all of these things, these characteristics were coming to the surface at the same time as I was having my babies. Mm -hmm. And so naturally, that's, uh, that's what it was called. Now, this whole time, I kept thinking, but I don't feel depressed. There is nothing about my mindset that feels depressed. And I've worked in mental health forever. So I was like, this, this, I'm sure this is not depression. Mm-hmm. I understand why it would be classed as that, because externally, this is how it looks. And I've just had kids. But what the hell is going on with me? which was that in 2016 I was diagnosed with autism and uh, this came about because by then Maple was four and she was showing all the characteristics of being an autistic child and I should probably put a disclaimer here because in Australia um, the autistic community are very very all for. Um, I, um, identity first language. So I call myself an autistic person. I call my daughter autistic. I talk about autism as being autistic people, but I know that in America is very still much, very much person first language. So just, I just wanted to sort of, um, speak on that for a moment so that people, you know, aren't offended mm-hmm. by my youth language around this. Um, but I was able to look back at this point. So Maple was diagnosed as autistic and I was, and I was able to look back across my entire life and see all of these things that I'd really struggled with internally because my expression of autism wasn't outward. It wasn't rocking and screaming out loud. It wasn't punching walls and running away. It wasn't, there was a lot of not talking, but I was classed as a shy person. And there was a lot of not being able to, to eat food, but it was classed as being a picky eater. And there was a lot of um, me on the inside feeling trapped and like I didn't know how to be in the world. So I just I just copied, I chose the girls I wanted to be like and I just watched them and I copied everything they did and I developed a personality and a way of being in the world based on what other people were doing that I wanted to be like. And they weren't rocking and stimming and flapping their hands and so I didn't either even though I'm very much someone who needs to flap my hands (laughs) um and so I had I was able to look back across my whole life and there'd been so many so many countless things across my life that just didn't make sense and I was like this is not what it's like this cannot be what it's like for other people what the hell is wrong with me Mm -hmm. So it sorted out the whole depression thing. I could see that I was not functioning because I was not supporting my needs. Music had supported my needs and kept me regulated so that I could do everything. I went to school. I went to uni. I was, I was really like achieving a lot of things and life was not that difficult and I wasn't having meltdowns. But as soon as my tool for regulation sort of went Um, and then Maple was a very, very, um, Maple's also autistic and she just screamed and screamed and screamed from the moment she was born. So I never had the capacity to really get back into my musical life the way I I did before children. Mm. Um, so that cleared up the whole, so I do not believe that I had postpartum depression, although, you know, perhaps who knows, but I'm very certain that the ability, the, the, the non-functioning and the problems with functioning and being able to talk and think and make sense they were all highly related to my profile as an autistic person. And once I recognized that and could start supporting my needs, my sensory needs and my um, executive functioning needs. And when I could, when I had so much more clarity into who I am as a person and I could See where I needed to support myself and start doing that again. Uh, everything started to change again, and that was when I really—that was 2016. That was the year I really started to learn who I was, and and everything started to shift for me in a really positive way.
0: And that's what you're talking about. And you didn't know who you were at 2014.
1: I literally didn't. I didn't know my core, and and I think, and a lot of the autistic community, especially here in Australia, I, I can't speak for what it's like in America, but. We are so, it's like not knowing, not knowing your autistic identity is like not knowing your gender or not knowing like your most basic core, who you are. Mm. And a lot of people, um, especially in terms of their children, a lot of people who have autistic children are frightened of that concept of autistic being who you are at your core because of our own preconception of autism, because of our past. So, in the past, autism has been discriminated against, not understood, because, remember, we've never understood the brain until, like, the last 15, 20 years. Right. Autism, all of history has been completely misunderstood and it's very feared and it's um, it's it hasn't been supported or understood the way it should. This has been a really recent change. Um, But me, as a person, understanding autism, understanding neurology, and having a really good sense of self, I'm able to completely own this essence of who I am. Um, And it's been the knowing, finding out my autistic identity was literally the most, the best day of my life. I can't, I can't explain what it's like to go through your whole life until you're 36, not knowing why you don't make sense and not knowing how really understanding what's going on around you and then to all of a sudden the veils just drop and all of a sudden you can see who you are and a lot of the shame at that point disappeared for me because i felt there'd been a a life of ableism and and gaslighting really and i felt i should be able to be organized i should be able to follow up on the things i say i'm going to do and i kept telling myself things like i'm lazy i'm and how can i be so smart but so dumb because i can i can do uh all these years at uni, I can read the research, but I I can't understand small talk. And so all of these things, and I can't follow a recipe, like I can't follow a shopping list. Those things really like confuse the hell out of me. Um, And so I'd had all these stories that I told myself about being dumb and being, you know, all of these horrible things. So actually recognizing who I am at my core just was the best thing ever.
0: That's so beautiful, and that's something I try to tell everyone is when they're on that journey of finding their health, Um, there's another book I read. I can't remember who said this, but it was something to the effect of if your practitioner or provider can't figure out what's wrong with you, it's because they're not smart enough. They're not looking in all the corners and avenues, and we get so laser focused on a diagnosis that once you get that, that's who you are but there's so many caveats and things that come into play with who you are because you are a snowflake. We all are. There is no one else like us. We can't be put on a regimen of care and come out like this other person over here with the same diagnosis because how you got your, the way you are is completely different way, the way they got that way they are. So that's what I try to express to people is you got to stay on that journey until you come to your conclusion as you figure out, and you feel it. And like you said, you, it was like the veil was torn away. You feel it in your body and your mind. You're like, that's it. It makes so much sense now. And so I think that's one thing I want to leave everyone with is if you're on a journey, if you're in chronic pain, if you have mental, emotional, physical trauma issues of whatever sort, keep going. Is that what you would tell them?
1: Oh, uh, absolutely. Like you can't, I, personally couldn't rest until I knew who I was and I'm sure that there are so many people in the world who just don't really know who they are who are still trying to seek that and even though I've got this level of clarity now there's still more like I know that there's never a end point of working out who I am that's always going to change throughout my life as it will for all of us um, and even having the, the diagnosis of autism was so important to me initially because I needed that to really understand how to support myself. And even now, only a few years later, um, it's less important, but if I hadn't have had that diagnosis or that identification, um, and the clarity, that depth of clarity around who I am, I would not be at the point now where I can start to not rely so much on labels um, and definitions, um, because I have such, I have such a deeper understanding of who I am and what I need. And that is the most, that is the most you can ask for as a person is to just continue to deepen your understanding of who you are and what you need.
0: I think that's that's a good way to put it is to any type of, um, diagnosis or really observation of anything about you should only be um, a a mechanism of maneuvering. So you get this information. Okay. How do I need to maneuver to help myself best regulate? Given that information, not this is who you are and this is who you have to be and you have to stay over here. It's just a piece of information. So using that information, use, if you use it, Mm -hmm. let it maneuver you given that information to your regulatory component of who you are. So that's, amazing. I just, I knew there was going to be so much good that would come out of this conversation. And now you like, this is just perfect for what I, I hope for is you've come on this other side. Again, like you said, we're, we're a new, we're a new you with every event that comes into our life. So I, I was a new person after I had my first child. I was a new me after I had a child that was injured. I was a new me. I was, I was told I wasn't supposed to be able to have my second child. So you're a new you, after, so you're always developing, growing, learning, um, but you're on this side of being able to utilize all of those tools so that the next thing that comes up, you're like, wait a minute, I can look back at that thing that happened in the past, and I, I was able to come through it, so what this thing that is facing me now, I can also come through that, and what I think the, the, one of the greatest things about it is you're showing your children that, And I know you're you're like watching your Instagram page just makes me feel good. Like you're so artsy and you're outdoors. And I just like, I feel more in touch with nature. Just looking at your Instagram page. One of the, one of the really sweet things that I wanted to end with was you're talking about your husband and you talk so just glowingly about him and he's the personality, like you said, different maybe than what you expected, but Tell everyone about that amazing Mother's Day oh, you had yeah. in the woods. Oh, okay. It's like a so, storybook. Uh,
1: firstly, we live in Tasmania in Australia, which is, and we live in a very regional area, sort of half rainforest, half bush. Um, and we have an acre and a half. So I'm not sure what that is in, in America, how you would describe that same, size. Same There's acres? Yep. so one and a half acres. so we're very lucky uh, on my very first mother's day in the, on this property um, my husband there, there was an old bath down in the bush that someone had had from when they used to keep bees and they used to have the bath there for the bees to dip in uh, he found it and he scrubbed it out and my he and my daughter did it together they cleaned it and they brought it up to the bush into a nice little clearing and he built a fire pit under it and he filled it up with what on mother's day he he said why don't you go out for a couple of hours and just have a couple of hours to yourself and while i was gone he and maple went around and collected wildflowers and they filled the bath up with what they lit the fire filled the bath with water from our rainwater tank until it warmed up and then they sprinkled all these little wildflowers all over the, the water and he also we had a little hut there from where the beekeeper used to have the hut so he'd set up this little table with Champagne and cheese and crackers and berries (laughs) and a book. He brought my book down and put the book and he had a towel hanging from a branch. And they brought me down in the afternoon to this steaming hot fire bath. And I'm talking like all around me were a 40 meter high eucalyptus trees. And so when I hopped in the bath and I had this whole space to myself uh, and I just looked up and all I could see were these giants towering above me. I, I it was, I've done it. It's, so it's a tradition now. I have a mother's day bath every year on mother's day and um, I sit in there till dark and I just watch the darkness come in and then I see bats start to fly around and it's just such a beautiful, uh, it's just a beautiful place to live. And it is exactly what I need to regulate. In fact, baths are one of my most important Um, personal self-care rituals
0: yep that is beautiful and everyone needs to go scroll down her instagram history and find that picture because it's so beautiful and it's so awesome that that's you know we could talk about relationships for a whole nother hour but it's amazing that he learned you to know what you need to help you and that's a huge part of a good partnership is learning that. So it's amazing that he was able to do that for you. And I'm glad that you do it every year. That's awesome. I love it. So what's that?
1: Me too. I couldn't do without them now.
0: Yeah, I know. So we have had so much information. This is actually the longest podcast I've ever done, but we just have so much that we wanted to share with people and to try to help, especially during these um, trying times and stressful times I think the biggest takeaway is they're there. What are you doing to help your body and to help your mind navigate back to regulation and be able to better walk through these times? So Allie, I know you have a lot of stuff on your website that people can and I'll have all your information in the show notes, but you have an ebook. People could go online right now and get your ebook that talks about the brain, What's the title of it, the 12.
1: Uh, the 12 pillars of brain care
0: yes so you can start there tonight doing something for your body and your mind to help you regulate um you are a- available for teaching seminars and classes wherever whenever we can travel again uh-huh uh, and then so anything else that you want to tell everyone before we before we cut this out I have a, um,
1: I have an online e-course which is called Brains Equal Behaviors. It's a 10-week e-course. We only run twice a year, so it will not be running again until about November. Mm-hmm. But if you're on my website and you're looking at my resource and, resources and going, oh, I really resonate with this, um, you can just click on the button that says Brains Equal Behaviors and go on the wait list, which means you'll be notified of when it's time to find out more about it if that interests you. I also have a um, membership called the brain care cafe Um, and in the cafe, which is kind of cool right now because we can't go to any actual cafe. So here we are all meeting in a cyber cafe and we do a lot. We focus on brain care. And so each month of the year we focus on a different pillar of brain care, which we haven't talked about today, but you will read all about in the free ebook. Just go to my website click on the, the ebook, download and um, have a read. It's super interesting. Um, and we use, we focus on using music in the brain care cafe to regulate and to um, my definition of brain care is giving our brain more of what helps it run and less of what shuts it down. Mm. So the 12 pillars of brain care are all about things that our brain needs more of to help it function at its best. And we can address those things through music based strategies it's really creative it's really simple it's really accessible um, and it's just a a really cool uh, little place to be so the brain care cafe is something else you can look up if you're interested
0: awesome thank you so much for your time i know we're on totally different sides. We're like 9,000 miles away from each other, I think. So thank you for sharing this time with me. And I hope this um, message and story of of yours and your experience in life and dealing with all these different um, areas of life and people are helpful to others. Thank you so much. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. See you.